Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping, and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. After this episode, you guys will never be able to say I don't ever listen to you again. So, listen up, creeps. I sit here with you now because this case was heavily requested. Normally, historical cases haven't exactly been popular with you guys. But this case, this one might be different. There are crimes which terrify. There are those that destroy the hearts of an entire town. And then there are crimes which grab the attention of the world and take on an air of legend and myth. One such case is that of the Velisca Axe Murders. The Velisca Axe Murders have transcended reality, it would seem. That distance of time allowing us to take in the novelty of the mystery and separate it from the tragedy of the act. It's been the subject of countless B-flick horror films, as well as amateur and professional documentaries alike. And for good reason. This case is, of course, brutal and terrible, but the mystery surrounding it, one which will most likely never be solved, is at the risk of overusing the quote to prove a point. Stranger than fiction. I would, however, like to remind everyone listening that this case is a true story, and that these people were once just like you and I. In 1912, on a calm June night, Josiah and Sarah Moore walked with their four children and two children who were staying with them. They traveled down a dirt road in what was an overtly religious, quiet, sleepy farming community known as Villisca, Iowa. It was colder than it should have been for a June evening. The Presbyterian Church's children's service had concluded at roughly 9.30pm with milk and cookies as a pleasant send-off which Josiah and Sarah, I imagine, were more than willing to partake in before the chilling walk home. Their path was marked by cornfields bordering the dirt road. The wind rustled through the tall, leafy stalks, that soft, white noise welcoming them back to their neat and tidy residential neighborhood. As the family, along with their small guests, returned home, a nearby bush rustled. Based on an eyewitness testimony, Josiah, Sarah, and their children regarded the bush but shrugged it off as an animal of sorts, maybe a raccoon or a feral cat. The next morning came, and Mary Peckham, a next-door neighbor to the Moors, woke up at the crack of dawn on June 10, 1912. She was an early riser and preferred to get an early start on the domestic tasks for the day. But as she went about those chores taking her wet laundry outside and hanging it along a clothesline, she noticed that there was none of the usual hustle and bustle of a home with four young children in it. Josiah and Sarah's home was disturbingly quiet. They must be sick, was the first thought that Mary Peckham had, and of course because Villisca was a small Midwestern town whose neighbors looked out for one another in a way that was slightly intrusive, but also carrying in a way that is alien to us now and nostalgic. 
Mary contacted a relative, Josiah's brother Ross, to come in and check on the family. Ross, a local pharmacist, or rather, a druggist, arrived at roughly 8 a.m. and let himself into his brother's home. The house was still, even too still for a house full of sick people. Not even the sounds of coughs or sniffles polluted the air. And then, as Ross moved through the front door and towards the back of the home, he saw the first two bodies. They lay in a back bedroom of the home covered in bloody bedsheets. Panic gripped him, as any of you creeps listening as well as myself could imagine. What a terrible sight to walk in on. But I need to give Ross credit. In a time when forensic science may as well have been magic or science fiction, he knew better than to run to the bodies and embrace them. He immediately backed out of the home, the way he came and quickly called the store Josiah worked at, telling another employee named Ed Sully to call Henry Horton, the town marshal, immediately to come and investigate. Because, and I quote, something terrible had happened. Another half an hour passed, then Marshal Horton arrived promptly at 8.30 a.m., I guess things move fast in a small town where there's not much else going on because he got straight to work investigating the home. Soon after entering, though, he came out of the Moore's home, erotically shaking his head as if he could just disagree with what had happened and it would all be undone. But it couldn't. There was an absence of color and blood in the man's face. Marshall Horton was clearly shocked and that mixed look of fear and sorrow was one that was too difficult to hide. Marshall Horton was quoted as saying he had found someone murdered in every bed. The marshal found little in the home aside from the horror show. It was odd, though. All the mirrors and reflected surfaces had been covered in bedsheets and the family's clothing which had been ripped from drawers across the home. The first two bodies which Ross had seen in the back bedroom were the bodies of Moore's two young guests, 8-year-old Ina and 12-year-old Lena Stillinger. They'd been battered and beat to the point of being unrecognizable, the blunt side of an axe. Lena Stillinger was also posed in a sexual manner, but there was no evidence of sexual abuse. Lena was also possibly the only victim who had been awake when the killer had attacked. She had a gash on a knee and what looked to be a defensive wound on her arm. When Marshall Horton walked up the stairs, that's when he found the Moore children. 11-year-old Herman, 10-year-old Catherine, 7-year-old Boyd, and 5-year-old Paul. Each beaten bloody and unrecognizable. Whoever the killer had been, he'd taken the time to strike each child 20 to 30 times with the blunt side of an axe. Like the mirrors, the children were also covered in bed linens, as if the killer didn't want to observe what he had done after the fact. In Josiah and Sarah's bedroom, Marshall Moore found the couple in bed, laying next to one another, both battered and beat beyond recognition, just like the others in the home. The next day, the coroner in charge of Velisca began reconstructing the crime. This reconstruction should be taken with a grain of salt. It was determined, based on the timeline of events as Mary Peckham knew them, 
that the intruder, possibly multiple intruders, had entered the Moore home through the back door, which likely wouldn't have been locked given the fact that few doors were locked back in 1912 in Villisca. Having entered the back door, it was likely that around midnight the intruder had snagged Josiah Moore's axe on the way into the home from the coal shed in the backyard. While in the home, the intruder, or intruders, had grabbed an oil lamp that had been sitting on a dresser. The coroner was able to make this statement because the glass casing, or rather what would have been referred to as the chimney, was removed from the lamp and placed underneath a nearby chair. The wick in the oil lamp was then manually bent over so that the flame could be kept low and dim, only giving off the slightest guiding ambient light to maneuver through the home without knocking over objects. Josiah and Sarah were bludgeoned brutally, but quickly. The assassin moved quietly and dispatched with both of the parental figures in the home without waking up the children who slept in the next room over. Then the intruder, or intruders, moved to the children, dispatching of the younger Moors in much the same fashion, annihilating the entire family of six without waking up the Stillinger girls who were in the room downstairs. After having dispatched with the Moor children, the Stillinger girls were tragically next. It wasn't until every life, save that of the intruder or intruders, was obliterated that they returned, revisiting each body to beat them beyond recognition. This is a vivid recounting, I know, but without that vivid recounting, we have little else. Beyond the scene of the crime and given the lack of technology to further an investigation into DNA or anything else like hair, that's all there really was, just the scene of the crime. Now, the crime wasn't without a suspect, though. But that never truly manifested into any meaningful conviction or evidence of involvement. The main suspect at the time, and the only individual brought up on charges in Villisca, was Reverend George Kelly. The Reverend was interrogated throughout the summer over and over, but little came from it. With the trial drawing near, the prosecutor attempted a last-ditch, all-out effort to have the Reverend confess to the crime. He was grilled throughout the night. The Attorney General and Harrison County Sheriff alternated between bad cop and good cop, trying to confuse the Reverend and trip him up. Throughout the non-stop interrogation, they'd allow Reverend Kelly to return to his cell periodically to rest. In his cell, the Reverend found himself with two thieves and repeatedly told them over and over that if he confessed, the punishment would be easier. According to the thieves, he was doomed one way or another, right? Those thieves were in actuality the deputy sheriff and a newspaper editor. By 7 a.m. the next morning, the Reverend was completely broken in dictating his confession. According to his confession, this is how the night went. He had had a restless night, and being unable to sleep had gone for a walk. While strolling down the middle of the road, he'd seen a light in a home, and two children getting ready for bed. The two children supposedly being Lena and Ina. That's when the Lord's voice commanded him to suffer the children to come on to me. He immediately went into a trance-like state and walked to the back of the home, picking up the axe from the coal shed and annihilating everyone within the home. He supposedly stayed until the crack of dawn and then let himself out through the front door. 
With that confession, on September 4th, 1917, nearly five years after the murders, Reverend George Kelly was taken to trial. The first trial of two concluded in a hung jury after Reverend Kelly recanted his confession. The second trial, which took place in November 1918, saw Reverend George Kelly acquitted of all charges. The locals of Villisca thought the Reverend was being framed as part of a conspiracy headed by the Iowa State Senator F.F. Jones. Senator Jones supposedly had used his influence to frame the poor and broken Reverend Kelly. But that's an entirely different story. The search for truth, which has lasted over 100 years, is a lot to summarize. And even now, giving the reevaluating of first-hand accounts and testimony, modern-day investigators are still finding more possible suspects. In 2004, a documentary named Velisca, Living with a Mystery, was released. It put forth that the murderer was one of America's first serial killers, and was responsible for similar murders in Monmouth, Illinois, Colorado Springs, in Ellsworth, Kansas. But at the end of the day, the case still is, and is likely to, remain unsolved. As time passes, the line between what was, what we think was, and what we wish had been begin to blur. The way I've framed this makes it sound as if Reverend Kelly was indeed the murderer. But the interrogation methods were unethical to say the least and in no way should a confession in the 1910s led by a bullish attorney general with a newspaper editor stationed at the ready in a cell be taken as credible. As I see it, the Reverend was indeed an easy mark, for reasons I was unable to cover in the short time I'm allotted in this podcast to cover with you. I do implore everyone, no matter the case, if you're intrigued by a story, Please go forth and do your own due diligence. Anything short of a six-hour play-by-play and in-depth podcast is going to only be a cursory glance, and even those won't even be able to touch the surface of how complex some of these cases are. Unfortunately, I'm unable to condense and tell you all the absolute and undeniable truth with all its facts lined up neatly in a row from all the different perspectives. There's not a single podcast that can do that especially not a case that's over 100 years old. Today I've done my best to present one storyline, but this tale is comprised of many. There are other suspects that weren't looking into, and there are other accounts and facts that when weighed from a new perspective or different perspective are more or less important. So please always take what I've given you as my best attempt at portraying the story as completely and concisely as I possibly can within the time frame of a comfortable car ride but no matter the podcast. If you're truly interested in a case, you're never going to get all the facts. There just isn't enough time in the day. So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every 5-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. 
You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors. (laughs) 